starting in Mark 8, verse 22, going through verse 34. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called to the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for this time to be together as family. And Lord, we pray now that uh, you bless this moment. And we pray our hearts and our minds are open to your spirit and your word. And may it transform us more into your likeness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, now I I know this, as I say this, I am not as old as some in the room. And I know there are some who continually tell me that I'm still a kid. And I'll say thank you for that. But at 43 years old, I am learning something about myself as I get older. And I've been in a bit of denial about it, um, or I was in a bit of denial about it uh, when this whole glasses thing became a thing in my life. And what do I mean by that? Well, uh, many of you know me, you've known me for a long time, and you know that I'm someone who who wears glasses most of the time, but I can tell you that I did indeed deny that I needed glasses for the longest time. And maybe you can give me an amen on that. You did it too. I did. I would just squint as hard as I could to make the things far away look clearer. Uh, If you ever wondered about driving, uh, because I know driver's license renewals, you got to go and do an eye test uh, generally. Well, I got good at memorizing lines. And I know it's not the best way to go about things, especially when you're driving a motor vehicle. Uh, But... When you don't want to think about getting older, you will do anything that it takes to rationalize that you're not getting older. Chris Clark. I was willing to squint at things to be a bit fuzzy uh, in order to not admit I needed glasses. And it wasn't until I finally went to the eye doctor when she looked at me and said... You should not be driving. Plain and simple, you should not be driving. She gave me a bit of lecture for driving without glasses or whatever, corrective lenses, and as you can imagine, uh, and she then showed me what I had been missing by putting on a pair of corrective lenses, uh, and all of this I had been going on because I thought I'd, I was 20. I've 
just 20 all the time. And it was a myth that I created in my mind that I'm not getting older. And I was willing to do whatever it took to live into this myth until I met with this doctor and she showed me a realistic vision, no pun intended, uh, for me that I was getting older. My eyes were probably going to get weaker. So just find some cool glasses and move on. And so we start in verse 22 today of Mark 8. It's a brief interaction with a blind man in Bethsaida. It's a scene we have probably read numerous times uh, in the last few weeks. A group of friends bring someone who's sick, a blind friend, a crippled friend to see Jesus. And they're looking for healing. And this man's looking for healing as his friends bring them to Jesus. All he wants to do is see. So Jesus does what anyone would do. He spits on his hands and rubs the saliva on the man's eyes. It's pretty gross when you really read it. I mean, and COVID wasn't even an issue at the time. And it's still pretty repulsive. I mean, the thought of, of someone spitting in their hands and then rubbing it on somebody else's eyes is just kind of this when you read it. I'm like, no, thank you. Like, all I need you to do is say something. But this is what Jesus did. And what's interesting about the story, and maybe you noticed it, is that there's a two-part kind of healing to this story. Did you notice this? As the man wiped the saliva out of his eyes, he still had funny vision. In verse 24, it says, I can see people, but they look like trees are walking. Which begs the question, how do you even know what trees look like? But you know what, that's another thing. People look like moving trees to this man. He could, he could not see clearly. He, he saw more than he had, but his vision was still not completely corrected. His eyes are being opened to the newness of the world, but interpreting that newness was still rather difficult, right? He was opening his eyes, but trying to interpret what he was trying to see after not seeing for so long was difficult. He was seeing, but not really seeing so when jesus touches him again the man's eyesight is restored fully he can see clearly as it says in verse 25 and here's the thing as we've been reading encountering jesus is not a small something one is transformed when they encounter jesus one changes when jesus touches you Jesus doesn't leave you or anyone else, if you've noticed, the same. People aren't just partially healed. They're not partially transformed. They're not told to just partially do something. No, when Jesus touches you, total transformation happens. It's not just an outward look. I mean, Jesus could have left the man blind seeing people like trees and says, hey, it'll clear up in a few days. As one writer says, through the touch of Jesus, salvation arrives, walls collapse, and boundaries are crossed. And as we learned with Mark's writing, I think, as we read the story of the blind man, we have to keep reading because there's more to the story than just a blind man being healed in two parts. I'd have to believe as we read that Mark is trying to show us that the blind man's healing personifies the story that we're about to read in verse 27. Because here's the thing, we've been walking with Jesus for eight weeks now. Hopefully, this has been a good thing. I appreciate the uh, words of encouragement you guys have given me on, on this, is a, this is a good thing. I, I, enjoy, I enjoy hearing that, so uh, keep telling me that. Because if anything, I believe you're reading the Bible, which is great. 
But we've been walking with Jesus for eight weeks, and we find ourselves at this point halfway through Mark's gospel. And what we're going to notice now is there's a turn that's going to start taking place as we move into the second half of the story. And you might have noticed in, in verse 27 that there's this phrase that Mark says, and he says, as, he, as, him and the, as Jesus and the disciples are walking through the villages of Caesarea Philippi, they are on their way. They're on the way. There's this kind of, we might read quickly past it, but Mark's trying to tell us something, a, a marked indication, all the bit subtly, that Jesus' journey is now going to begin to point him towards Jerusalem and the cross. On the way, we're going to notice that Jesus will begin the arduous task of making clear that the way, uh, making clear of what the way of the kingdom is going to look like. The hard work of true discipleship is going to begin in this moment for the twelve. And in this question and answer time with the disciples, Jesus begins to uncover, begins to clear up maybe a little bit of the fuzzy vision of the followers. And maybe even as we read it, begin to clear our own fuzzy vision of Jesus. Because you see, walking with Jesus and encountering Jesus doesn't leave us the same. Our sight will need to be cleared up. And we got to ask ourselves today, in this moment, are we seeing clearly? Or are we seeing trees walking around? Still a bit fuzzy. Because everything we have read and encountered with Jesus in Mark's Gospels comes to a head in these next few moments, in these next chapters. The disciples that have been with Jesus through it all, and, and Britt talked about this in his class this morning, like, like you've got it at this point, Jesus is looking up at his, as his dad and going, these are the 12 you thought was a good idea to give me? These are the 12 that you're ensuring that the kingdom is going to like flourish? I mean, these guys have been walking with Jesus and we have witnessed all of their weaknesses, and we've witnessed their questions, and let's be honest, their faith has been shoddy at best. Their understanding of who Jesus is or will be is partial at best, and as Gary Charles says about the story that we're about to read, by now, Mark's readers have to wonder how many times Jesus will have to spit in the eyes of the twelve before they will see more than trees walking around. Their ideas of who the Messiah will be, what he will do for Israel. And we have to remember, this is centuries upon centuries of myths that have been created within the minds of the people of, of just who Jesus and the Messiah is supposed to be. They have been taught these myths from the moment they were children until now about what the Messiah was going to do, how the Messiah would function, how the Messiah would save them. And we're going to see they're still seeing a bit fuzzy. They've rationalized that what they are seeing right now with Jesus, the healings, the walking on water, pushing back against the Pharisees, they're going to begin to rationalize, as we see here in a minute with Peter, that Jesus is everything they want Jesus to be. They're almost projecting their miz onto Jesus and saying, this is who you're supposed to be. And so when Jesus asked the question of the disciples, and we know this question in Mark 8, 27 and 29, he receives the many answers from them. Elijah, you know, um, John the Baptist. Others just say you're a good prophet. 
And it's Peter standing up in his confession that we begin to realize this moment is different because maybe you don't know this, but when, G, when, when uh, Peter says in verse 29, you are the Messiah, in the Greek he's saying you are the Christos, he's using a word that we only seen one time in Mark, which is in Mark 1.1. It's the only time we've read it until this moment. Peter, in his confession, is saying that Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is more than a great teacher. Uh, that Jesus is the one they've been waiting on. The one who will restore the political fortunes of Israel. What Peter is saying is, the revolution is coming. We've been waiting for this. You are the one Jesus is the one that Israel has been hoping for. He is the strong man, you remember, who will bind and throw away the empire of the Romans. There is this picture in the mind of Peter and in the minds of the disciples of just what this strong man will do and how he will be. And Jesus still looks like the trees to him. We applaud Peter in this moment. We do. When we read it, we're like, Peter got it. We applaud Peter in this moment only to realize in the next verse, because really, Peter gets a verse. And then we realize in the next verse that Peter's still not seeing clearly. As Jesus begins to teach his disciples in verse 32 of, of what the Son of Man, what Jesus must undergo and face in the, coming, in the coming time, Peter, the hero of the moment, is now repulsed. The Messiah is to be the revolutionary hero in the story. And it is the Gentiles, it is the bad guys, the Romans that will now suffer under the hands of Jesus. Peter and the disciples are imagining, we've been suffering for so long. Turnabout's fair play. You're going to suffer now. Get kind of giddy when they think about it. How many of us have gotten kind of giddy when we think they're going to get theirs? Peter wants threats. Peter wants bombastic speech. Peter wants military plans. Peter does not want suffering. And the only way Peter can respond to Jesus is like Jesus' family in Mark 3. You remember Mark 3? When Jesus' family comes to Jesus and pulls him away, and they're pulling him away because they think he's crazy? They're actually pulling him away because they think that he's demon-possessed. And so Peter, in the same way, takes Jesus and pulls him aside, and, and Mark actually uses the word and says in verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now that word rebuke is an interesting word because it is the same word that Jesus uses to exercise demons. Peter believes that all that Jesus is saying in this moment, the Son of Man must suffer, the Son of Man must take on pain, the Son of Man must die. Peter thinks in this moment he is possessed by the devil, and therefore he must be rebuked. Because everything Jesus is saying in this moment makes no sense to Peter at all. This is not what you're supposed to do. So Peter actually tries to exercise Jesus. Wrap that around in your mind just quick. Exercising Jesus. And in the words of Pe Pepper Brooks on the movie Dodgeball, that's a bold strategy, Cotton. We'll see if it pays off. But Peter's vision of Jesus is still a little fuzzy because Peter attempts to rebuke Jesus, but that is what you do when you're trying to rationalize your position, right? You will uh, squint as hard as possible. You'll memorize letters so that you don't have to admit that you are where you are in life, right? You'll do whatever it takes to fortify your position. 
even rebuking the Son of Man. You'll do whatever it takes. You'll say whatever it takes to get your way. And however, what Peter and the disciples find out is that no one will control Jesus. No one will project on Jesus. And so what do we see happening? We see in this verse, Peter tries to exercise the demon out of Jesus. Jesus exercises the demon out of Peter. Because it's Jesus who looks at Peter and rebukes him and says, what? We know the line. Get behind me, Satan. Walking with Jesus will not mean just a partial transformation uh, of the disciples. Uh, Walking with Jesus this whole time will not mean the disciples will continue with this partial understanding or rationalized understanding of who Jesus is. No, we still see the disciples at this moment still need full transformation. We can almost understand where the disciples are at. Their vision needs clarification. Jesus' questions seek to open the eyes to who the disciples are following. They are not following the Messiah of their dreams and of their miz. They are following the one who has come from the Father. We can understand what the disciples are going through if we really read it. We can even understand Peter because how many times have we decided on who Jesus is? How many times have we told Jesus this is our expectation? How many times have we placed upon Jesus certain things of what Jesus would do and what Jesus will do and how Jesus will treat certain people who we don't like? It's always who we don't like. You ever notice that? Jesus is always going to be mean to the people we don't like. We always project onto Jesus those ideas. uh, And then when we read about Jesus, there's a little bit of dissonance. I've said this many a times in the last uh, few weeks, but uh, just thinking about it, reading this, I wonder how many of us even believe that the Jesus that we read in the Bible fits the mold of the Jesus that we think in our heads. If we saw Jesus today, I wonder how, Jesus, how we think Jesus would act, of the Jesus of the Bible who says this is how Jesus is act. We want Jesus to be a strong man, and Jesus says the strong man's going to suffer and die. They are following the one who's calling them to take up their cross, verse 34. And this is where we see that following Jesus, that discipleship begins with clarity of vision to know that Jesus has called us into his life, not vice versa. Jesus isn't called into our life. Jesus calls us into his life. So taking up his cross. When the disciples and those around Jesus hear the call, take up your cross, it doesn't mean they, they all go out and buy crosses, which we're pretty good at doing. No, it's just the opposite. When Jesus said, take up your cross, the disciples and those around him weren't thinking, boy, that sounds like a good thing to put on my, to put on my uh, neck. The call of discipleship from Jesus causes pause. And I would imagine it causes deep impressions introspection from everyone hearing Jesus. The cross, the ultimate symbol of power and fear, is to be taken up by those who want to follow Jesus. By following Jesus, the cross becomes a reality in their life. But get this, as Jesus has been showing, and here's the good news, the cross no longer controls your life. The fear of the cross is what the Romans were using with the cross to bring fear. The fear of what the cross brings, death no longer holds power 
over the disciples. In a world that comes at us so quickly and fast, in a world that calls for our allegiance to it above anything else, and we know these allegiances because we read them on our social media feeds, we see them on our news feeds, uh, the cable news channels that we watch tells us about them every night for crying out loud. In fact, many times the world and those allegiances do their best to define Jesus. If you're a Christ follower, you do fill in the blank. You vote, fill in the blank. You only watch, fill in the blank. They do a great job of defining who Jesus is. We have our own myths about Jesus, folks. We have to admit it. And in this moment, Jesus comes to bust all of those myths by saying, what? Son of man's coming to suffer, die, and raise again? They always miss that part. So take up your cross, because you're about to see the cross holds no power. Those myths hold no power. And when this happened, Jesus becomes more like what we want him to do, like how we want. If we kind of live into the myths, Jesus, in a way, those myths tell us that Jesus is safe, that Jesus will do uh, everything that we want him to do. All in all, the definition we like of discipleship is not so hard. So Peter and the disciples saw Jesus this way. The way they wanted to see Jesus was the warrior, the one who would bring the reward to them, and yet Jesus must clear their vision one more time. Their lives are going to be caught up in the life of Christ. Christ's life would be their life, not the other way around. And it's as if the disciples have been walking with Jesus this whole time, not knowing who he is, and now they're beginning to see. From here on out, they would begin to witness what it would mean to follow Jesus, how difficult it is in this discipleship idea that it's messy and it's hard. And like the blind man in Peter, I think all of us need to hear the call of Jesus today. I think I need Jesus to call me again today to die to myself. Because, let's be honest, this whole call is messy. It's like saliva being wiped on your eyes. Kind of difficult to understand, kind of gross, and kind of hard. Jesus, you want me to do what? You want me to be who? You want me to give up what? You want me to love who? Because when I do, when you do, we begin to see Jesus more clearly. We begin to see the one who heals, who raises the dead, who touches the unclean, and will be raised from the dead. And so my question to you is, how are you seeing today? How are you seeing Jesus? Are you seeing Jesus clearly? The call in our life is that we follow Jesus. It's going to be a messy one. We've already begun to see that. It's messy. It's hard. You touch people you don't want to touch. You talk to people you don't want to talk to. You wade into messes that you never thought you would have to wade into. The cross, that's a thing. The cross, it's still death. Death to our definitions and power plays is what Jesus is calling us to. Death to our myths. But what Jesus tells us is this. When you begin to see Jesus more clearly, when you begin to die to yourself and die to those things and you, let, you get caught up in the life of Christ, there is life on the other end of that. There is life abundant. There is life transformed. There is life without fear. There is a life that is going to be a light to a dying world. And that's what I think 
as we've been witnessing in the last few days what's so desperately needed. I was reminded of, Laurie reminded me of one of my favorite shows is MASH. And there's this, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but there's this moment between Father Mulcahy and Hawkeye. And in this moment, they're talking about war, and they're talking about um, what it means. And Hawkeye says this, war isn't hell. War is war, hell is hell, and of the two, war is a lot worse. How do you figure that, Hawkeye? Easy, Father. Tell me, who goes to hell? Sinners. Exactly. There's no innocent bystanders in hell. But war is chock full of them, and we've seen it, haven't we? Little kids, cripples, old ladies, almost everybody involved is an innocent bystander. And Jesus calls us to be the people of peace, away from war. People, the people who look at the people who are struggling and weighed into their lives, being defined and seeing clearly who they are and what's going on, and, and not seeing them as trees walking, or not seeing as like, look at them and go, and we've said it before, they're going to hell. Not seeing them that way either, but seeing them with the eyes of Jesus as the ones who are caught up in the life of Christ, who have died to ourselves, died to our myths, died to everything we think about Jesus. Because we've read and we believe and we have been touched by Christ and we are not partially transformed. We are fully transformed and therefore we can see clear. But how are you seeing today? Are you still rationalizing? Are you still saying, Jesus, but Jesus a little bit? When you get touched by Jesus, you are all in. And the disciples are beginning to learn they are all in. But we too can still see Jesus a little fuzzy. It happens. But thank God that Jesus still will take a little bit of saliva, and wipe it on your eyes, and say, now do you see clearly? Mark is good at what he does. If you have any needs this morning, if you're struggling, if you find yourself not quite there, if you find yourself not quite fully believing Jesus is who he is or struggling with what he's saying, join the club. We'll walk with you. We'll be there. We'll, we'll see you for who you are. We're not going to see you for anything more than you are the created image of God. Let us walk with you and help you now as we stand and as we sing.